Art & Logic Minimum Viable Podcast. Today I'm speaking with the president of Art & Logic, Bob Bajoras, and the vice president, Andrew Sherbrooke, about non-destructive testing, or NDT. Bob, Andrew, welcome. Thanks, Carlos. Thanks, Carlos. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Nice to have you here. So, Bob, you've worked with non-destructive testing for a long time. Can you tell us a little bit about your background with NDT? Yeah, sure. So prior to working at Art Logic, I, I worked uh, 12 years for a company called Krop Kramer Branson, which you know, they were widely recognized as being the world leaders in this particular industry. So that was you know an honor to get to work for them. But I joined the company there as an electrical engineer. That was my background at the time. And I helped design uh, the instrumentation that was used for doing non-destructive testing, specifically ultrasonic testing, which is just one discipline of non-destructive testing. There are other types, uh, you know, X-ray is another one that a lot of people are probably familiar with. That's that's also a non-destructive testing. Uh, but there are others that we can talk about. But my expertise is mainly in ultrasonic non-destructive testing, and also specifically industrial ultrasonic inspection. There's obviously also medical ultrasonic inspection too, which I don't think they call them inspections. They call it more like ultrasonic imaging. Makes it sound a little nicer when it's medical related. Um, would you mind going into a little bit about what it means to do non-destructive testing? I mean, the name is kind of obvious. It suggests you don't destroy something while you're testing it. But right. what what else would, would really kind of help understand what it means to do NDT? Sure. So you do non-destructive testing when you want to look inside something. Uh, that's That's the whole goal is what's inside that part. You know, you can pick up something and do a visual inspection on it, which incidentally is another form of non-destructive testing. Um, But that just tells you what you can see from the outside. So you want to know what's on the inside of that part. So you can either do an x-ray, which, you know, will show you the inside of a part. But the problem with x-rays, of course, is there's a lot of safety, you know, requirements. You you can't just shoot parts with x-rays without, you know, building it into some type of a protective you know, enclosure. But ultrasonics allows you to shoot sound waves into a part and see what's on the inside of it. So it's not destructive because you can do that on every single part. It has no impact on the part. The alternative, of course, would be to like to cut it open, look inside. Um, but unfortunately, that's a destructive test. You can't use that part once you cut it open. Um, so that's, you know, that's why it's called non-destructive testing. Uh, and since it is non-destructive, you can test 100% of a particular part, um, you know, so it's not just uh, a sampling, which you can do, you know, if you are, you know, if you want to cut something open, sure, you can say, well, you know, we'll cut every 10th part open, look to see how it looks on the inside, and we'll just assume that all the other ones are similar, and therefore they're good also, if, if, you know, once you cut it open, it looks good. Can you share with us any kind of examples of a non-destructive testing project that we worked on for a client? Yeah. So there's actually the very first project that we worked on when I was the client. Uh, I, you know, I was actually involved in, in writing the specs for a, a testing machine that was going to be used for, in te- uh, for testing uh, diesel pistons. And, uh, we hired Art and Logic to write the, the software that acquired all the, the data uh, and also you know evaluated the data and determined whether or not the, the, the piston was, was good or bad. And, and the reason that we did a non-destructive you know, ultrasonic test there was 
for these diesel pistons, you know, to save, you know, energy, you know, you have to make things lighter. So they start making diesel pistons out of aluminum. Uh, but aluminum, unfortunately, is soft. So, you know, if you understand how pistons work in a, you know, internal combustion engine, you, you, there has to be a seal between the piston and the, and the cylinder. And that's done by, uh, you know, a, a, a ring on the piston. Well, you can't make that ring out of aluminum because it would wear out, you know, you know, quickly. So it still has to be made out of, out of, you know, a stronger steel. So the way they manufacture these is they have these steel rings and they cast the aluminum around that ring and the aluminum bonds to it as, as everything cools. Uh, now, if there's any kind of dirt or something, you know, some contamination on that, uh, that ring when the aluminum is poured around it, it doesn't seal properly. So, you know, the problem is, you know, you put these bad pistons in a, a diesel engine and, you know, out on the highway and next thing you know, the top of the piston blows off and, you know, destroys the engine. So our job was to try to identify if the aluminum and the iron had properly, uh, you know, sealed, to, you know, was it actually bonded. And so we had a number of transducers shooting sound in at different angles, looking at the top and the bottom of that ring where it was intersecting with the aluminum. Uh, one shooting, you know, from the back side of it. Uh, I think all in total, maybe there were like six different transducers that were part of this fixture. You know, the machine would feed the pistons into it. It would position it, rotate the piston, capture all the information, and then it would analyze the information. Um, and the software had to evaluate it you know, on a number of different criteria. You know, it would look to see uh, how much how much of an area might be disbonded. Uh, I don't know what the criteria was as far as what was good and bad. But for instance, you know, if a quarter inch of it was disbonded, maybe the decision was that's okay. So it would say, okay, that's a quarter inch disbond. Accept it. However, it might, you know, like I said, it's looking in multiple locations. So it might see that maybe the top was disbonded by a quarter of an inch and the bottom was also disbonded by a quarter of an inch. So in that scenario, we might say, well, that's actually bad. You know, we can accept it if it's disbonded in one area, but not if it was disbonded in two areas. So the software would, you know, would, would, would make that, you know, consideration. Um, and it went even beyond that. It, it would actually look at whether it was a continuous disbond. So maybe it was disbonded for an eighth of an inch and then it was good and then it was disbonded for another eighth of an inch and then it was good. Uh, it would, the software had the ability to say, well, if those good areas in between the disbonded areas uh, are small enough, then let's treat the whole thing like it's one big disbonded area. So the software again, you know, could do that. Um, and all of this was, you know, completely configurable, uh, you know, so that it could test, you know, different size pistons uh, under different criteria. Um, and the fact that it was cylindrical was another, you know, interesting problem that we had to solve because uh, once you rotate it 360 degrees, then obviously you're sort of re-inspecting the same area of the, of the part. So you have to make sure that uh, from a evaluation standpoint, you know, the zero degree point and the 360 degree point are considered the same, you know, the same part, <laughs> the same area of the part. So if a defect were to overlap from 350 degrees to 10 degrees, it would have to be evaluated as one defect rather than, 
two separate ones, which is what it would look like if you sort of looked at that in time because you inspected it from zero to 360. So it was a really interesting project and uh, it worked great. You know, Cummins Diesel, Cummins Diesel uh, used these pistons every day. And, uh, you know, unlike uh, airbag inflators, you know, I haven't heard anything in the news about diesel pistons, uh, you know, failing. So, yeah. So now, like I said, you know, I was I was the client at that time. So it was kind of neat being on that side of it and working with the uh, the developers at at Art and Logic and, and helping them test that system. It sounds like the software is doing a lot of stuff in this sort of expert system to make decisions and to. It, it seems like what, what kinds of stuff does the software do here? Why is it using computer vision to process this, or how does it know about what you've described? Yeah, that, that's a good question. So. The instrumentation has the ability to capture, you know, waveforms, and it also has the ability to measure um, the amplitude of those waveforms, uh, and it has the ability to uh, use what they call gates, which defines a certain uh, time frame of when it's really interested in, you know, those those signals. You know, so when you send the sound into the part. You know, obviously there's a big echo at the beginning, which is, you know, the main bang or the pulse that hits that transducer. And then the sound travels into the part. Uh, when it gets to the back of the part, it's going to reflect off of the back of the part because sound reflects whatever it uh, encounters in an acoustic impedance mismatch. Right. So it's going to bounce off the back of the part and come back. So if you were just looking at, at that waveform on the scope, you would see this big echo. Uh, and you would think, oh, you know, that could be something of concern. But, you know, you know, the people who design these tests, of course, know, no, that's perfectly fine. That's that, you know, we want that echo to be there. That, that just tells us the back of the part. So what we're really interested in is, are we getting some type of an echo in between, you know, the front of the part and the back of the part? So we set these, you know, electronic gates that say only look within this time frame for some type of a signal. So if a signal comes up inside that gate, uh, it's measured by the instrument to be a certain percentage of amplitude. Um, you know, so the system will be calibrated so that you know anything above a certain percentage is considered uh, you know a defect. So what the software is doing is it's just sampling the output of the instrument and looking for those measurements. So and just you know recording the amplitude of what those gates are, are recording. Got it. So it's not um, it's not doing any kind of you know machine vision or anything uh, sophisticated like that. It's just literally plotting amplitudes of the echoes, um, and then you know against some geometry that it, right. that it knows about. So you send the pulse, and then there's a certain amount of time before that initial reflection, and then a certain amount of time before the back wall reflection. If anything happens in between, then that's perhaps a problem if it's significant. Yeah, it's an indication something's in there that's not supposed to be in there, right? Right, gotcha. Yeah. That sounds very much a bespoke solution. It's like that's designed for this particular part at this particular distance, this size. So it doesn't sound like, at least in this kind of world, there's a generic solution one could use for a bunch of different materials or shaped right. objects? Well, what's generic is that you have a, a, an instrument that's capable of generating a pulse that hits, you know, a piezoelectric, you know, uh, 
transducer that generates sound that you know that's traveling into a part you know that's 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 the basic primitive of the of the whole test but each test has to be yeah, has to be designed for that part and the machines have all the you know the instrumentation has all the controls on it that it needs to so that you can set it up to you know, to look uh, you know in the right areas of the of the of the waveform so. You you mentioned mach machine vision as well though, and so I mean when I'm listening to what you're talking about and thinking about how how, how you're described NDT and and the process and the the way that the measurements have taken it it seems like it's an opportunity for some sort of development with machine learning or AI. Um, have you seen or do you anticipate that there's going to be more movement in that with NDT? I think absolutely. You know, I. I I was in the business, you know, I was working with, with Kyle Kramer 20 years ago and 20 years ago, you know, we were capturing, you know, images of, of components and, you know, and then people would, that were trained to know how to look at them, you know, essentially like reading an x-ray, you know, like a, radio, a radiologist would do, you know, they would look at those images and they would, you know, they would see areas that, you know, of concern in those images. Um, and, and even at that time, uh, since we were, you know, using computers to capture these images, people were already talking about, well, wouldn't it be great enough if the computer could, you know, recognize what was, you know, what might be a questionable area. You know, even if it didn't actually make the final decision, uh, it could at least say, you know, these ones are, you know, questionable, you know, get somebody to take a closer look at these. Uh, but at the time, we didn't really have the, the technology to, to do that. Uh, but today we do, uh, you know, we've actually done that on, on a couple of projects here where we uh, weren't working with ultrasonic images, we were working with X-ray images. And we were able to, with you know, a decent degree of, of uh, confidence, identify uh, markers in those images that uh, indicated potential you know, defective areas in the part. Uh, but I think where the industry is right now is they will accept this type of new technology, and, you know, uh, but there's still a lot of standards that things are being inspected against. And I, I'm not sure if those standards are quite ready to accept the, you know, a, a, a machine learning algorithm or neural, neural network to, you know, directly tell you that this is a good part uh, or this is a bad part. So I think right now we're still at the point where it can be used as a as an aid to the human operators, uh, but it could definitely be, I think, a time saver. You know, like I said, you know, if it's only you know if it's telling us that you know these are the ones you need to take a closer look at, then obviously that's that's going to help because um, you know humans will be able to focus their time on just the parts that really need you know that. The way that you know human brains are capable of analyzing imagery. Well, you mentioned the airbags, and I think you know when we think about what happened with that recall the, of the Takata airbags. I mean, do either of you know if that was like in how they were tested, or or what the process was there? You know, it's a good question because we actually did that application when I was working at Crowdcraver. Uh, I don't know who the manufacturer was at the time, but I do remember. Uh, bringing in these you know, aluminum uh, you know 
components that held the you know the explosive material that uh, you know and it, it was vented so that when the explosive material went off it would inflate the airbag and, and they had that exact problem that Takata was having where the the, the parts were, were breaking apart and the way those happened to be manufactured it was you know there were two pieces kind of like a clamshell uh, and they were friction welded together so you you know you, you hold one of them stationary and then you spin the other one and press it together and the friction of the parts spinning together you know melts the the surface and fuses it together uh, and, and and then just like the application i was describing earlier with the pistons you know if there's anything on those surfaces when they're brought together um you know dirt or any kind of contaminant it would cause the the bond to not really form you know it would still melt because you still have friction but it wouldn't properly form so it'd be a you know an area of you know stress concentration when the explosion would go off and it could potentially you know cause the two pieces to separate you know and then you basically have a you know a projectile it's you know aimed at the driver's chest so we did that inspection and it was something that we could fairly easily detect it was really straightforward in terms of a ultrasonic test so i don't know how takata got themselves into the situation they did where they had so many parts fail that they uh, they had to do these massive recalls and you know of course people died from it too it wasn't just you know a financial problem one thing i'm struck by i had a little bit of contact with um one or some of our ndt work and there's so many different components to an ndt system like one of our clients they they did a big part of their business was creating these massive lead-lined enclosures so you could do the x-raying of parts within them like you were talking about before bob the safety constraints of the x-ray uh, it makes it a huge undertaking and mm -hmm. in order to be able to do stuff within those enclosures you need to have robotics involved you've got to move the parts without any human interaction otherwise you're opening right. the door and making sure it's safe between every scan but so the projects we were working on there's elements of robotics and controlling these systems and then there's the actual synchronization of the imaging process with the data collection and then there's the analysis afterwards and it's just a lot of different really fun to work on pieces oh yeah no absolutely i i really loved working on those you know um you know automated testing machines uh, you know, because you would you would go on site, of course, and you would look at what they were currently doing, or you talk to them about what they're trying to do. Uh, and it wasn't just with the X-ray machines. The X-ray machines, of course, have the added complexity that you need to have this, you know, protective enclosure that uh, you know, where the parts are being inspected. But it's the same process no matter what you're doing. You know, uh, I've spent a lot of time at pipe yards, you know, down in that, you know, the the on the Gulf Coast or, you know, in Alabama, uh, up in the Birmingham area, there's a lot of pipe mills or pipe yards. And, you know, it's the same kind of thing there. You, know, you have these, these pieces that, you know, a human can't just pick up a piece of, you know, a 40 foot section of drill pipe. So, you know, you need these machines that, uh, you know, can load up something that can handle, uh, you know, multiple sections of piping because you want them sort of queued up and then you know you want the machine to be able to move it into that position and the machine then has to spin it and then you have this uh 
transducer array uh, that then you know is moved into position and then it's scanned along the length of this part. Uh, you know the data is captured, analyzed. Uh, the machine is then told you know to remove the part. Um, yeah, it's 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 really fun because yeah, there's so many things happening. Uh, it all has to be coordinated, and uh, yeah, and it's and it's usually uh, multiple systems that are sort of talking to each other too. So you know that all kind of presents its own kind of fun. Um, but uh, yeah, it's 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 pretty neat stuff, um, and uh, you know a lot of times the people who are actually running the machines and the instrumentation are even you know sort of in a a separate you know nice air conditioned room. You know, looking out through a window of, of these, you know, pieces being inspected. It's, it's pretty neat. Yeah, there was one system I remember working on. This one was in Birmingham where um, the electronics kept failing. And we would go down to inspect it and we couldn't find anything that was really wrong with it. You know, we'd repair the part that was broken um, and everything would be working great. And we'd go home or not go home, but, you know, back to the hotel for the evening. And we'd come back in the next day and, you know, find out, you know, it, something, it, the same thing failed again. So, you know, so we're thinking, obviously, something is happening overnight that we don't know about because, uh, you know, it looks fine when we're there. So, um, so we stayed the one night and, uh, you know, just, just to see what was going on. And then we discovered I think it was the air conditioning, like when they turned the air conditioning off in this this sort of shed or hut, you know, that they had the equipment in, that the the voltage in the lines went up to like 175 volts <laughs> instead of you know, the normal 110 that you're supposed to be running the equipment on. <laughs> so, so that that enabled us to figure out why the equipment was finally failing. It was, it was essentially plugged into 175 volts all night. This is the end of part one of our discussion about non-destructive testing with Bob Majoris, Andrew Sherbrook, and Carlos Perez on Art & Logic's Minimum Viable podcast. Thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us again for the conclusion.